We are going to be this morning in a book of the Bible called Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. The, the words will be up on the screen behind me, but we also have uh, Bibles over on the sides here at this table and at a table over here in the back. That would be our gift to you. Um, we open the Bible every single week because we believe that in it contain the very words of life, that the Holy Spirit is here to help us understand not only our reality, but the very invitation that Advent celebrates. Advent starts, uh, started three weeks ago. Today's the third Sunday of Advent, and Advent is a season up until Christmas Day where we get to remember that Christ has appeared, that our Savior has come, that the eternal Son of God took on humanity and came near to us, not only to save us, but to show us life with God here and now. But we also look ahead. We don't just look back. We look ahead to that day where the second Advent will happen. Advent simply means appearing, and we look ahead to when Jesus Christ is going to come back and return. And so today we're going to look both directions a little bit, and we're going to see in this passage of Scripture in Galatians 4 uh, something very profound. We've titled the series God With Us, we are not very original in embracing the traditions of the church, but God with us is what Emmanuel actually means, right? And David wrote us a liturgy at the beginning of our service. I don't know if you noticed this, but every letter was an acrostic that said, Emmanuel, God with us, right? It was so fitting. It's exactly what we're talking about today, so let's open up our Bibles. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. I'll be reading from the ESV. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, right here with us, we ask you to speak. This Advent in particular, very much like last Advent, feels weightier than any that I can remember because of the reality of our world right now and how darkness and um, division mark our time. And we need you to show us exactly what the richness of our hope is in Jesus. We know that when suffering and difficulty invade our lives individually and corporately, that it is a greater opportunity to see exactly the gift that you have given us that we have always had access to, and yet uh, we see so much more sharply and vividly. So Holy Spirit, you know exactly where each of my friends is in their life right now. You know the burdens they bring into this space, and we do not ask that you would help us to ignore them, but we ask that you would help us to hold them up into the light of your presence, that we would see what you think and what you are doing and what you invite us to in the very midst of those burdens. Please help us, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can have your seats. <clears throat> Probably... Seven years ago now, my, my wife and I moved down with our oldest son from Seattle, Washington to start this church. Um, we moved about a mile south of here, and we were part of another church over in Hollywood for a while called Reality LA. I was on staff there. Many of you were, were there with us during that time and came with us when we came to start the Commons LA. And I joined a, we joined a community group, which was their name for midweek groups. We call them missional communities. Um, they called them community groups, and there was a new one forming down in Rancho Park. It's like a neighborhood south of, of Westwood, where we are right now, right? So I'm talking to the leader of this new group that's forming, and he says, yeah, it's going to be really small. It's our family at our house in Rancho Park. You guys coming to be with us, and there's one other couple that are going to be with us named the Westfalls. Okay, great. Small group. Kids are already there. It'll be great. 
we go and we're, we're there and the Westfalls haven't shown up yet and Bob, our community group leader, is talking to us and he says, oh yeah, you guys are from Seattle. The, the Westfalls were in Seattle for a while. Now, if, if you're from Seattle, a kid growing up in the 90s that loves basketball, uh, you've blocked out the 2000s when the Seattle Sonics moved away and were stolen by Oklahoma City from us, but the 90s were the glory days. And in the 90s, they had a coach named Paul Westfall. And I'm like, huh, that's the only other place I've heard that name. Couldn't be. Coincidence. Westfalls get there. In walks this bubbly older woman. Old, all right, could happen. <laughs> and then around the corner walks her husband, and he has to almost duck to get in because he's like 6'6. Six, six. And I'm like, it's him! <laughs> the Seattle Supersonics head coach from the 1990s is in my community group? Are you kidding me? And I walk up to him so sheepishly, I am Devin. <laughs> And he's, oh, hi, Devin. It's good to meet you. I'm Paul. Just the most jovial older man said, yeah, we, we're here. We moved down from Seattle. Oh, yeah, me and my wife, we were in Seattle for a while. And I'm like, yeah, I think I know. And like, we, we work it out. And he's, oh, yeah, I was. I was the Supersonics head coach for a couple of seasons. My heart and mind were over the moon. It was too good to be true that over the next couple of years, we got to be in community with a childhood hero of mine. Got to hear all these inside stories about Gary Payton and Sean Kemp and all these athletes that were a part of that team and some of the drama that unfolded afterwards. It was amazing. I felt like I was on the inside of something that I had seen from afar for a long, long time. Eventually, he went and he got to be an assistant coach for the Brooklyn Nets for a while, and then that had its own like awesomeness, we got to go be in box seats for a uh, Nets-Clippers game out here at the Staples Center. I got to be ushered into relationship with someone that from the outset, I could not believe because it was too good to be true. We're in Advent, and what I want us to see today is that Many of our presuppositions about what it means to be a Christian are like watching God from afar on a television, coaching the mission of what he's doing in the world, when in actuality, Advent is about him entering into the room with us and inviting us not just to know about him, but to enter into his very life. It's he sits down in the room with us, and we're immersed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the life of a Christian as a child of God is to not just be um, children of God from afar, but to enter into the very life of God itself. Today we're talking about the Advent theme. Last week was light in darkness, right? Advent and Emmanuel, God with us, draws into contrast. That's why I prayed, help us take our burdens into your presence and hold them together. Because so much of being a Christian and the message of Christmas and Advent is things that seem so opposed to each other coming together. Last week was light and darkness. And we lament this reality that we have hope in the light, but we live in the midst of darkness, and we look ahead to the greater hope of the light that will finally come. And today, we're holding together the reality of God in man. The incarnation, incarne, literally is the Latin term for in the flesh. It's God in the flesh. Jesus Christ has come to be with us. But it doesn't stop there. The main point today is that God in man has made way for man to live in God. We're going to unpack that, all right? First thing that we see in Galatians as we turn there is that God is working in our waiting. God is always working in our waiting. Verse 4 of Galatians, I don't know if you noticed the, the interesting phrase, but 
The, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. For thousands of years before Jesus Christ, God had been working in the midst of awaiting humanity that had lost hope when sin entered in, when brokenness had entered into the world, God had been working. And just at the moment when Jesus enters in, fullness had occurred. Everything that God wanted to do was completed. It's like, as a parent, Christmas Day, um, it's a whole different perspective than growing up as a kid. Even before having kids, there's this different degree of preparation that you're putting in because you know that these little humans are so looking forward to that day, the last thing that you want to do is let them down. And so there's all of this preparation that goes into the Christmas season as parents, but the fullness of time in the gospel was the filling of all of history with preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Thousands of years of humanity waiting. How easy, I wonder, must it have been for generation and generation to go by in God's people and them to be like, yeah, I don't really think that he's doing anything. Or we're, in this, we're just inevitably going to be waiting. The coming of Jesus Christ in the season of Advent reminds us that God never wastes our waiting. The fullness of time had come. Jesus Christ did not come into an unprepared world, but God had prepared all of human history for the coming of his son. That's why when you read the Old Testament, the two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament. It's the preparation for the coming of his son. And so we see that God came in and took this man Abram and brought him into a promised land and made him into a huge number of people in slavery in Egypt and then liberated them by the hand of Moses, brought them in, 12 tribes, and they filled the land and they were supposed to be his people and his presence dwelt there in a temple, but they were unfaithful and so God brings in foreign peoples to conquer them and smatter, uh, smash the temple and send them away so that he could regroup a pure people again. But then even they fail. And then, as soon as God's very people seem like they have failed yet again, Jesus Christ enters into that full history that, that we would never look at ourselves and say, we think we can get where we need to go with God. They had his very words. They had prophets. They had the temple, the place where he would dwell. Might I suggest to you, God has proven throughout history that we can never, as people, as human societies and cultures, progress ourselves to paradise. And the reason we need to know that is because the world around us, especially in a place like this, believes that if we could just fine-tune society enough, we would create utopia. There's a whole political... Uh, uh, like progressivism, right? Progressivism is this notion that we can progress our way into paradise. Conservatism wants to go back to paradise. Progressivism thinks we can prepare. God says, nope, fullness of time, in comes my son. That's where your hope will be found. God sent forth his son, and if you jump down to verse 5, the purpose of the sending of that son well, well, we'll read from verse 4. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Details Paul thinks are important to understand how the son was sent. To redeem those who were under the law. To redeem those who were under the law. Two things that Paul thinks are really important for us to understand about the sending of God's son are that he was born of woman and born under the law. If you think about it for a second, the notion that God's son, God himself from eternity past, could be born into 
the human family and remain uncorrupted and uninhibited and unmitigated of all of his godness. That's what Paul wants us to know when he says the son was born of a woman. God did not snap his fingers and Jesus comes walking across the water out of nowhere. He was born into the mess of our world, into the complexity of human families as a little baby. And God's plan was actually to use that as the means for his entry into humanity. Like, let's never let that just be, a, oh, yeah, of course, Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh. Like, it is the most profound of mysteries because it does two things at once. It says that God is so great, he cannot be limited by a human body. And it says that humanity has enough dignity and value and purpose that God can actually be incarnate and not be undignified. Those two things come together in the purity of the conception by the Holy Spirit, and God's not defiled, and humanity is insanely dignified. You need to know that just because you feel mired in sin and you live in the midst of this broken world and darkness and you feel all of these things in you that feel so um, opposed to God and wrong morally and spiritually, you were not made without the kind of dignity that God himself can indwell. Jesus was born of woman, but he was also born under the law. So not only was he born into humanity, this son was sent, born under the law. The law was given by God to humanity to reveal just how broken our situation was. So if we go back to the Garden of Eden and the first three chapters of Genesis, we hear God give one simple command to God's people to try and produce this test for whether or not they were relationally dependent on him enough to listen to his commands. When they broke away from God and made their own kind of way, God's curse had come upon them. Now, curse, don't think like witchcraft, you know, like a voodoo doll where God's like stabbing humans with little needles. Think the curse as far as this, this weight of brokenness that comes upon the world to show the spiritual reality of what they had brought upon themselves. It would have been a horrible thing if the world could stay sustained while Adam and Eve and all of humanity in them could be cut off from the life of God that they were made for. So the curse is like this weight upon the shoulders of humanity. And in the midst of that, God gives a law. We have a weird relationship with the law as Christians. Um, we read God's commands, and we think that somehow, like some of us think this, variety of, of thoughts in the room probably, some of us think that those commands are like behaviorisms for us to follow so that we could feel good about God liking us, all right? That's not what the law is for. In fact, you try hard enough for long enough, and if you're honest with yourself and rightly emphasize all of those rules, you'll see just how desperately you need to be saved from your breaking of the rules. Now, others of us are on the other side of the spectrum, and we relate to the law by saying, oh, yeah, I can't do any of that. Oh, my goodness, yeah, thank you, Jesus, that you saved me from just how bad I am. But when we do that, we just kind of throw it all out. And then we think, I just live naturally, and I thank Jesus for forgiving me. When I was blown away this week, I was reading Psalm 119. The psalmist is effusively loves the law. He says, in the law, I have life. God, I love your law. And I'm like, all right, got to be honest. I'm a pastor. The, the emotions and the feelings that come to me when I read through Ten Commandments, the law given in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, love is not this like, there's not this magnetic draw to say like, yeah, could you give me more rules, God? <laughs> 
But here's the thing. God gives his law not to heap burden upon us. Yes, a part of it is to constrain our evil so that when we go out of it, we would feel morally guilty. We need that. But it's also a guide into the kind of human life that's really life. So that when we're tempted to steal, so that the life that we think would be really life, which is a life of prosperity and lots of stuff and self-sovereignty and like getting ahead of everybody else, that we would understand God's word comes in and says, you shall not steal because a not stealing life is a life of contentment that pushes you into God more where you really find your life. Jesus was born under the law, living perfectly. He neither violated the law to prove his perfection and purity as the Son of God, but he also paid for the penalty required of the law in the curse. Other places in scripture say he became the curse for us. He bore the penalty of our sin so that we could be freed for life with God, living according to the law, not trusting in the law. We don't say God loves me more because I am obeying God's law. But Paul here says that the son had to be born under the law so that he could deliver us from its burden, from its curse, to be redeemed. Did you see that? It says in verse 5 that Jesus was born, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. To redeem those who were under the law. You and I need to know that when we have put our faith in Jesus, something supernatural and cosmos-shattering has happened. We're not underneath the burden and the aloneness and the, con the condemnation and the shame that reading God's rules in the law brings us. We've actually been taken out, redeemed. It's redemption. We hear that's, that's become a really, really Christianese term where we kind of lose its meaning because we've heard it so much. And we're like, yeah, it just means God did something good. But to redeem, to, to redemption is, a, is an exchange. It was used in the marketplace in Jesus' time, in Paul's time. So you go to the market and you would, you would redeem something from a vendor in order to have it. It would, it would change hands. So what Paul is saying here is that we're no longer in the hands of the law, underneath the curse of it, and we're, we're now with God. When you are redeemed by Jesus Christ, you, now you have a different owner. You belong to God. You are his possession. You are not under the law anymore. You are free from the law, but guess what happens? When you're near God, the law becomes this path of life to get more of an experience of God and more of the humanity you were made for. So what, what we need to see here, God worked in the history of waiting and produced this story that his son could enter into and redeem humanity through the life and death and burial and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we could have a different owner again. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you belong to God. You've been redeemed from the curse of the brokenness of the world. And just because we live in the brokenness of the world, you need to know that God wanted you to live the rest of your life with him. Not just for him, with him. So, none of your waiting is wasted. None of your waiting is wasted. Think about what you feel like you're waiting for right now. Generations upon generations of humanity have waited, and in Jesus Christ, waiting was finally proven to be worth it. And now as we look ahead to the second advent, 
you can know that some waiting might last your life. And in that moment when Jesus returns and heaven and earth are brought together and eternity is here and with God is face to face and we see each other and we're like, I thought you were annoying, but you're glorious. Our waiting will have all been worth it. How much more than as we're waiting here and now with God and he breaks in and delivers us in the midst of our waiting, will it have proven to be worth it, okay? God's always working in our waiting. That's the first thing that we see here. The second thing that we're going to see in the last of these verses is that waiting, God's doing something in our waiting. Waiting invites us to surrender. Waiting invites us to surrender because the threat in the midst of our waiting is that we would take up self-sovereignty again that led humanity into the pit of darkness in the first place and that we would deliver ourselves from our waiting. Because chances are, you think of that thing I asked about, what are you waiting for right now? Job promotion, um, romantic relationship, you to get over this particular issue that you might have, situation in your life to be resolved. To be human is to despise waiting. It's to panic in the midst of waiting. And while we wait for that moment, knowing God never wastes our waiting, we need to realize that God's invitation is to surrender in the midst of our waiting. And so this moment of Advent is an invitation to assess in our waiting where God is inviting us to surrender a little bit more. Because if our life is in God, anything we withhold in our lives is refusing the life he invites us into. In verses 5 and 6, we see this. So we already saw Jesus was sent to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Jesus didn't simply come so that we would have a new owner in the sense of redeeming us from under the law, redignifying us with the glory that we were made for in life with God. He saves us into a new kind of relationship. So I shared at the beginning the shock of, of a coach that I had looked up to being in the room with me and doing life with me in a way that I would never thought possible. Here, we see that one of the reasons Jesus was sent to redeem us was so that we might receive adoption as sons. If you have put your trust in Jesus, you've said, I see that you have laid down your life for me, that in you is the trustworthy one, you don't just have a savior, you have a father now. God is the one who sent Jesus. Did you see that? Oftentimes, as Christians, we slip into the assumption that Jesus really loves us and God kind of puts up with us. But God sent his son that he would have many more sons. And I use that language intentionally, knowing that there are women in the room. What you need to read into this text in particular that addresses sons, 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 is the ears of the original hearers. Because what would happen with original hearers is, is a son had a different status than a daughter in ancient Roman culture. A son could receive an inheritance while a daughter could not legally. And so Paul is actually making a tongue-in-cheek statement with reference to how the kingdom of God is different than the world. Men, women, you are sons in God, equal in stature and freely given the inheritance that the world would withhold from you. And so God gives his son in order that men and women would become his co-heirs with Jesus Christ. All right, we'll get there in a minute, in verse 7. But just to make it equal among the men and the women, it's the same reason that both men and women are called the bride of Christ, right? 
God is so comfortable with his metaphors feeling a little awkward to translate from the world into our spiritual reality with him. But the father adopts. Here's what you need to realize. You were desired by God in the sending of Jesus. You were desired by God in the sending of Jesus. In an Instagram world where images scroll by and messaging from the news tries to instill panic upon us or or political division that says, this is who you need to be before the world will desire you. We have the reality that we're reminded of in the midst of Advent that God sent forth his son to adopt you into his family that you could belong to him. The you that you are before Jesus is the you that that God wanted to adopt. So God desires us, but here's the other thing. He takes responsibility for us as his kids. You need to know that if you have a father in heaven this Advent, in the midst of your waiting, your life is not primarily up to you. God the Father takes responsibility for your life. He's the one who feeds you. He's the one who has opportunity for you. He's the one who's laying a path before you. And so the question starts to come into our minds. The path that I've laid for myself and the path that God wants for me are not always the same path. And so being adopted into the family of God is simultaneously a blessing. You are loved and desired and a challenge to say, You're a part of this family now. God as Father disciplines his children because he has purpose for them. He's trying to get the world out of us so that we could be used by him as his very children who bear his image in the family name. You are desired, you have dignity, and you have purpose that maybe you didn't realize you had. So in your workplace, and in your classroom, and in your home, God the Father is trying to invite you into a kind of surrender that is responsive and aware of what he may want to do through you, okay? Waiting invites us to surrender, but we are not alone. You see here in the last part of this verse, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. If it were simply up to us to look to Jesus, to know and surrender ourselves to the Father, we would be hopeless because we do not have the spiritual resources in and of ourselves to to actually do what we're called to do. But notice that God didn't only send his son, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts that we would cry, Abba, Father. You and I have a high calling as representatives of the family of God here on earth, but you and I also have access to all the resource we could ever need to produce the kind of dependence and surrender to God that we could be hundredfold disciples for his kingdom. You think of the parable of the sower casting out seed and the the good soil produces fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. The Holy Spirit works with us, creating a kind of dependence that says, God, I need you, Abba, Father. Produces love for God in our hearts, produces longing for God in us, that we would learn the with God life. So in your waiting... Ask yourself the question with a kind of honesty. What is God inviting me to surrender right now in my waiting? Not that I would just live in misery, but so that my eyes would be in the right place in the midst of my waiting. And then say, Holy Spirit, I hold this thing, my plans, my reputation, my prosperity and comfort, my entertainment, whatever it might be, my time, my budget, I realize I have closed hands around it. Holy Spirit, your word says that you are in me through Jesus by the sending of the Father. 
Help me open my hands. And ask God's help. And you are participating in that moment in a supernatural reality that is beyond you, but by faith will transform you. So, we wait as God invites us to surrender, but we wait in verse 7, we see, not just as sons, but as heirs. So, you are no longer a slave, verse 7 says, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Um... This reality is so difficult to even articulate that I found myself this week in preparation like groping for words to describe what it means that you and I are heirs of God, okay? Um, there, there are multiple different ways to wait in the midst of a season like Advent, right? We, we can wait as those who need to like earn our own kind of... Uh, earn our keep through that process. We can wait with a ton of fear, wondering if we're actually going to get to the end of that process. And then there's a kind of waiting that's assured of the outcome. Right? Think about an heir as a child. Um, I watched Dune this week. Right? The, the Duke Atreides has a son who's like the heir of his throne. And in the movie, they make it like this moment where he's like, I don't know if I really want to be the Duke, which not the way the book goes, but like he's, he's an heir of the duke and all the duke's power and all of the duke's authority and all of the duke's wealth and everything that comes along with that name, right? He's not standing there kind of quivering over whether or not he's going to receive the inheritance. Like that's the thing he's least concerned about. He's more concerned with growing into the inheritance. That's a whole different kind of perspective to be assured of the outcome and be concerned about the process. I wonder if in our waiting and realizing we're children of God, we aren't more concerned about the outcome and overlooking the process. Being invited into the family of God is nothing less when we look to Jesus and see God become man Realizing that the Christian life is learning to live in God as your source, as your destination, and as the path. John Calvin, prominent theologian in church history, said this about the Christian life. The Christian life is not a response to God, but inclusion in God. I'm going to read that again, because as a church, this is the big thing that we have been discovering over the last couple of years. We had lived Christian lives and been a church that was like, God loves us and sent his son, so now we have to go and like do things in response to his great love for us. But we overlooked the very process by which we can become the kind of Christians that live in God with the security and the power of standing on behalf of God as his children. Listen again. The Christian life is not a response to God, but inclusion in God. That's what you and me, as children of God, if you've trusted Jesus, are working out in this life. You have so much dignity. You have so much authority as a child of the king. I wonder if you've learned very much how to steward it how to tap into it, how to anchor yourself in it. That's what the Spirit is willing to do when Paul says, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. God became man that we ourselves could experience life in the triune God. So my friend Paul walks into the living room, and I get to do community with God our faith as Christians is nothing less than us sitting in the living room of our lives and God coming in and Father, Son, and Spirit surrounding us and their love for one another and their joy in one another and the peace of their security in one another washes over us. And we're just living that out in this life. 
So it's not about us mustering something up, but receiving something and passing it along, that we could receive more of it. That's something worth living for. That's why Jesus said in John 14, I will not leave you alone, but I will come to you. I won't leave you literally as orphans, but I will come to you and make my home with you along with the Father. Your life is intended to be a with God life with the infinite resources of access to God and the infinite hope of the kingdom being fully brought here. And in the middle, none of us go it alone. So... In the midst of our waiting, God asks us, what do we got to surrender so that we could receive what God wants to give us? But then none of us go it alone in our waiting because God has given us a family to do that life with. And in some ways, the church is a waiting people. We shine light out into the world. We radiate hope out into the world. We invite people who are alone into our midst because we live in a kingdom and a family where no one needs to go it alone. We are not alone in our waiting. We're not orphans. We've been adopted. We are not powerless. We are heirs of the king. And so that's why our, the second value we have as a church, some of you may not have heard us talk about this. We try and talk about these as often as we can. Our second value is we belong as family. We belong as family because Jesus makes us children of God together. And these churches in the area are little families, representations of the family of God, living out the kind of togetherness that's actual humanity as God intended. You go out in the world where people have a single track of their own success, their own whatever it might be, that's not living the human life as we were created for. And so... One of the things that I am most proud of about our church and the way that God has gripped our hearts is the way that we just invite people in. And we go and we see needs and we seek to love people really well. Like Chris got to share a story during our, our giving invitation about how finances are used, but someone took the initiative to have effort to go out and sacrifice and love and pursue someone who was alone. Can we be the kind of people that learn this Advent in the midst of our waiting? We are so with God and one another that no one around us goes it alone. And we see someone start to walk away from the church into isolation, and we always have excuses for it. Oh, it's just a busy season. Can we also never use the word I'm busy, as a, or a phrase I'm busy, to describe our life? <laughs> it's like an escape clause for us really describing how we are. It's like if we fill our lives with enough, which is, it's kind of a mentality that Paul talks about here is slavery. I'm being led about by my life rather than actually going out with God in my life, okay? So I wonder for you, who's alone around you right now? Maybe it's a neighbor. We have a single neighbor in my apartment and I've been so proud of my wife and our community for going and loving and serving her. Who around you is alone, even though they might not even look like it? And what can you invite them to? What can you bless them with? Christmas Day, we give lots of gifts to each other. We remember Jesus as the preeminent gift given to us by God. Here's a simple thing that you can do this Advent. Start thinking now about a gift you can give to someone that's alone. Totally undeserved. And, and then, here's the probably more scary part for us. We love throwing money at people in needs and feeling good about ourselves. Be open to relationship with them. Because Jesus wasn't given just to save us and send us on our way. Jesus was given to make a way into relationship with God. So in the midst of our waiting... Realize God is working. Realize we're not alone. Realize we need to surrender some stuff so that we would actually dwell with God deeply. But then have the kind of, of realization that being human in God's family means generously giving away because we're going to inherit everything anyway. Do not live 
with a scarcity mentality as a child of God. Do not live with just your life in your purview as the kind of impact that you can have. You're kids of the king. Free your imagination to say, what kind of impact can I have? How many people could I impact for God's sake that he would empower and backfill all of my needs in the meantime? We think if I take care of my needs, then I can care for others as though we got to like get the mask on us first and then we can put the mask on other people. Spiritually, sure, you got to know Jesus before you can invite other people to him. That is a bad stewardship mentality. You will never have enough because guess what? Your flesh will just start increasing its capacity for more and more and more and you will never have enough. The richest people I know are oftentimes the least generous people I know. That should, that should be a really clear sign to us that riches will never be the answer, so you might as well start giving now. Okay? I want to read, as we wrap up, the story of one person in church history who had this kind of mentality. His name is George Mueller in the 18th century. Um, he was a German man who caught this vision for God's bigness and how he could actually tap into the generosity of God as a sign to the watching world that God is who he says he is. But he won't force himself on us. We got to take the steps of faith in order for God to come in and honor all of that with his power. These are the words of George Mueller. He, he founded an orphanage, all right? In Germany, imagine a time where if, if that was you, your station in life, there were, there were many fewer services than there are today. It is still a terrible situation, but this was what he stepped into. He said, the, the three chief reasons for establishing an orphan house are, first, that God may be glorified, should be, he be pleased to furnish me with the means in its being seen that it is not a vain thing to trust him. It is not a vain thing to trust him. That was his first reason to show that off. Second, for the spiritual warfare or welfare of the fatherless and motherless children, and third, for their temporal welfare. So just imagine sitting down and asking God, if I really am an heir to your kingdom, and if I really am with you, that all of my needs could be met, that I could be secure having nothing to prove as your child, what could I do with my life? Where are the needs around me right now? What gets my heart going in a kind of sense that says, justice has to be done here? Am I justice embracing God? Would use me, what would I want to do? This is what George Mueller probably wrote in his journal. But then, it says this, Displaying God's trustworthiness seemed to me best done by the establishing of an orphan house. It needed to be something which could be seen even by the natural eye. Now, if I, a poor man, simply by prayer and faith, I forgot to mention, he never asked anyone for a dime. He wrote down some of the needs in a journal that they passed around, like a weekly email update, but he never asked anyone specifically. If I, a poor man, simply by prayer and faith, obtained without asking any individual the means for establishing and carrying on an orphan house, there would be something which, with the Lord's blessing, might be instrumental in strengthening the faith of the children of God, besides being a testimony to the consciences of the world, of the reality of the things of God. This was the primary reason. The first and primary object of the work was, and still is, that God might be magnified by the fact that the orphans under my care are provided for with all that they need, only by prayer and faith, without anyone being asked, that it may be seen that God is faithful still and hears prayers still. This is a guy who had no social prestige, had no vocational ability or potential, how much more could God do through a little group of people who have realized the honor of the invitation and the power of our resources as heirs of the coming kingdom 
to shine light in darkness, surrender ourselves completely, that we could actually be his conduits in a world like this. Needs are all around us, friends. In the midst of our waiting, Jesus, as God with us, invites us into the with God life. And the with God life is displayed in our capacity to give ourselves away. Can we be people that give time this week to say, God, if I have the resources you say I have access to, if I have the security you assure me of, what could you do through me? Put pen to paper, have a conversation in your MC, in your discipleship groups, even here on Sunday. Maybe there's an idea in the back of your mind that you've been saying, I've been wanting to do this, and this is the moment for you to just step out on a limb and go with God for the blessing of our city. And pursue someone who is alone this Advent. Bless them, be in relationship with them, and we'll see what our great God does. Amen? All right. Lord Jesus, we do entrust ourselves to you. And we confess how small our view of what you have done for us is. Like we're watching on a TV your work in the world when actually you've come into the living room and we've, we confess, we kind of get bothered when you start moving the furniture around in our lives. But would you help us surrender knowing that, that you're the one who has the right vision for what it means for us to have a fulfilling life in the first place. And you have a purpose for us, Father. Let us be children who participate with you in your world for our joy and the blessing of our city so that we would wait patiently but confidently, knowing Jesus, the God-man, came, that we could learn the with-God life for the blessing of our city. We are not alone. Would you help us to see that? Would you help us to live into that? And would you help others to see that invitation to them as well? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.